assurance of the forgiveness of their sins. And that is also our comfort this morning. Let's also now open God's Word to the Old Testament. First of all, the book of Numbers, chapter 14. We're stepping away from our series in Kings just for a few weeks and then we'll be coming back to it. So first, we, we turn to Numbers 14 and we'll read the verses 1 through 12. This occurs right after the spies went to inspect the land of Canaan that God had promised to the Israelites. And the spies came back with a mixed report that the land was good, but the people were far too strong for Israel to be able to conquer. So Numbers 14, beginning in verse 1, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So far from Numbers 14, let's also turn now to Hebrews chapter 3. Our text comes from Hebrews 3, the text we'll be focusing on, and, and that chapter is also working with the material from Numbers 14. Hebrews 3, and we'll read the verses 7 through 19. He has just made the argument that Jesus is not only greater than the angels, but also greater than Moses. And so he says in in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test, and saw my works for forty years. 
Therefore I was provoked with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he, did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So far from God's word. The text to which we'll be giving our attention this afternoon is the verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews chapter 3. So let's read those two verses together again now. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So far. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure that most of you, just like most of the world by now, have seen the pictures of those, those 21 men in orange jumpsuits about a year ago, ago, a little bit more, beheaded on a beach somewhere in Libya. They were Coptic Christians, Christian men from Egypt, who had been working in Libya when they were captured by Islamic State. And the video shows the Islamists dressed in black and armed with knives, leading these men to somewhere on the beach, then forcing them to kneel and offering them one last chance to, to convert to Islam. And then when they refused, they executed them there on the spot. The video was intended to shock the world and to strike fear into the hearts of the enemies of Islamic State. But what, what captured the world's attention in, in this incident, more than anything else, was actually the faith of those 21 men who died. In God's providence, the, the Islamists who, who filmed it, they didn't realize what they were doing when they broadcast this testimony of those 21 men. Bashir Kamel, he's a brother of two of the men who died, he later spoke out and said, My brothers are a pride to Christianity, and they're a pride to me too. They make me walk, raising my head up in pride. See, ISIS gave us more than we asked when they didn't even edit out the part when these men declared their faith in God and called on Jesus Christ. ISIS helped us to strengthen our faith. See, what was intent, intended to intimidate, God actually used for encouragement and for strengthening, not just there, but even around the world. 
It's like the, the church father, Tertullian, declared that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in the West, this video also served to challenge the faith of us Christians who live here. Do we live as they died? Would we persevere to the end like these men did? Or would our faith fail in a time of trial like that? Well, the urgent call to persevering is also the concern of the author to the Hebrews. The book is full of that call to hold on, to persevere, to not give up until you reach the end. You find it in nearly every chapter of the book. Just to give a quick sample, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says already, we need to pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Then there's our text in in verse 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Then in in chapter 4 he says, Let us be all the more diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall. Again, in verse 14 of chapter 4, let us hold fast our confession. Chapter 6, we desire that everyone holds to the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That you will not be sluggish, he says, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Or just one more, chapter 10, verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's the big message of the book of Hebrews. It's a call to endurance, not in a time of particular persecution, but in a time when there is still that temptation to turn around, to give up the faith. And that's also then the big idea in this text that we're looking at this morning And it seems like the author here has his Bible open to Psalm 95. He's quoting from Psalm 95. And perhaps also to Numbers 14, which we read earlier. And he uses that story, he works with it, to encourage the Christians of his day that they would not make the same mistake that that former generation had made. In Numbers 14, the Israelites had just been rescued from Egypt and they had been brought through the Red Sea and then sustained and carried all the way through the wilderness. And then they came to a place called Kadesh, and from there they sent the spies to check out the land. And the spies, as we saw, came back with a mixed report. The land was good, but the people, they said, were far too strong for Israel. And so it's in that moment, after all that they had been through, the Israelites decided to give up the mission to forget about the hope of the promised land and all the promises that God had sealed for them and said that he would do for them. And then Joshua and Caleb, we saw this in Numbers 14, the two of the spies, they stood up in the middle of that crowd and you can just feel their frustration with the people. They say to the congregation in Numbers 14 verse 7, the land that we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. 
If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. They are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But that message fell onto deaf ears with the people of Israel. All the congregation in their unbelief, and you can see that explicitly in the text. The Lord says, how long will they not believe in me in spite of all of the signs I have done? The congregation in their unbelief rejected that encouragement from Joshua and Caleb and even decided to try and stone them to death. Because they would not believe the Lord's promises, they tried to silence any voices that might encourage them to move forward. And then you see in verse 12 in in Numbers 14, the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting and in his fury he declared that because they failed to learn anything from all that he had done for them and because they still refused to trust in him that their dead bodies would fall in the wilderness. It's because they failed to trust in the hour of trial that they lost the inheritance and they wouldn't get it back even after they changed their mind. So that's Numbers 14. That's the event that the author to the Hebrews is is working with. And now he reminds us of this moment in history, and he asks us to consider our own faith. And he's not the first to make that connection. Psalm 95 is the first to do that. It recalls that same incident and then says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did. So the author then puts it to his readers. What about them in their day? Will their faith persevere to the end? Or will they give in to unbelief and turn back? Now, it's not obvious what the threat is that that the, the author of the Hebrews is writing about. We read in chapter, you can read in chapter 10 that they had already endured some hard struggles, sometimes being publicly ridiculed, sometimes standing alongside those who were publicly ridiculed. They had compassion on brothers and sisters in prison. Some of them even had their properties plundered. But it seems like that was a long time ago. It, had, it, it was part of their past, but it wasn't in the recent past. He says in chapter 12 that in their struggle, they had not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, presumably referring to martyrdom. So it seems the threat now is not so much persecution, but just holding on, just not giving up in their faith, not going back to the old Judaism that they came from, not forgetting about Christ, their Messiah, Being a Christian in in their day came with all sorts of challenges, and it probably did feel at times like there wasn't much reward to be gained from it. So the challenge for them was just holding on to their hope, just not giving up on on the hope of their faith. And so the author then confronts his readers, you are now in a place a lot like Kadesh, just like your forefathers were. Look where you've come from, from slavery to sin. And look where you're going, to the presence of God. Now you have the report from the land ahead of you. You know what the future holds for you as Christians. Yes, 
Lots of enemies, lots of sacrifices, but an amazing reward at the end. The presence and the glory of Christ. Is it worth it to you? Are you going to go forward? He challenges them. What's it going to be for you? And just like the author then applies the exhortation of Psalm 95 to his readers, we can apply it to ourselves as well. The psalm says, Today, if you hear his voice. And so today, brothers and sisters, you also are hearing his voice. Right now, we are at a place like Kadesh. There's an amazing reward in store for us as Christians. The glory of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, the fellowship of all the other saints that have gone before us, all the warriors who fought the good fight before us. There's no question that the reward for us will be worth it if we get there. But on the way, there are going to be challenges ahead of us. There's the temptation to give up, especially in the fight against our sin, which can be so discouraging. We fight and it seems like we make so little progress and we're tempted to give it up altogether. And then there's the enemies outside, the embarrassment that we inevitably have in the world, the contempt that society has for Christians, maybe not for Christians in name, but certainly for Christians who take their faith seriously enough to let it shape their lives and determine their hopes and dreams. And so we are in a place a lot like Kadesh. That's where we are. And so that's how Israel at Kadesh and then Psalm 95 and then Hebrews 3, how all of those fit together and also connect with us. What's the exhortation then in this text? You can see it in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Watch out. He's saying, take care, be careful, be vigilant. The exhortation here involves watching, vigilance. And what for? Watching out for that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's a very strong warning, isn't it? That there might be in some of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to even fall away from the living God. Now, if you know your Reformed theology well, you might ask, well, what's he talking about here, falling away from the living God? What about the perseverance of the saints, that God will always preserve the elect and cause them to persevere? Is it possible to fall away from the living God? Well, notice, brothers and sisters, it doesn't say take care that your hearts might become evil and unbelieving. And that's important. It's not that your hearts might become evil and unbelieving, but that there might already be in you an evil, unbelieving heart. So the text is not suggesting that hearts that now love the Lord, hearts that now believe in God's promises, might one day suddenly, without warning, fall away from the living God, become unbelieving. But rather, that if we're not careful, some of our hearts might already be unbelieving, and we have just failed so far to notice it. 
So if you're wondering here about the perseverance of the saints, that's not the question that he has in view here. He's not questioning the perseverance of the saints, those that already are believing, but he's calling us to be honest and vigilant about the condition of our hearts. That doctrine of the perseverance of the saints should never cause any of us to assume that we are elect without ever seriously examining ourselves, or to assume that we truly believe without honestly examining our own hearts. Maybe there is deep-rooted unbelief still in our hearts that we haven't honestly confronted yet. You think of the Israelites at Kadesh. It wasn't that there was a sudden massive loss of faith in that congregation. No, there was a glaring absence of faith all along, even though they might not have realized it until that moment. So then the doctrine of of the perseverance of the saints by no means negates the need for vigilance. The danger is not the evil that is out there somewhere and the possibility of it coming and suddenly stealing our faith without warning. No, the danger that might lead us to fall away from the living God is the fact that there might be unbelief already present in our hearts all along and that we never noticed it. And just to be clear then, make no mistake, it is entirely possible to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit to taste of the heavenly gift, to even share in the Holy Spirit in some measure, to taste the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come with an unbelieving heart, and then ultimately fall away. It's a direct quote from chapter 6, verse 4 to 5. And so we might again ask, well, well, how does that jive with with Paul's golden chain of those who are predestined, are called, are justified, are glorified? Well, remember, the author here is thinking about about Numbers 14. So what does he mean when he says that? Well, to taste the heavenly gift, to share in the Holy Spirit, to taste the goodness of the Word of God, these are covenantal blessings They describe the blessings of being members of God's covenant. We have eternal life with God given to us in our baptism, promised to us again week after week. And the Holy Spirit works through the word every time it's preached. And it touches repent and and, and the Holy Spirit that is touches repentant hearts and unrepentant hearts, though in different ways. But that by itself is no guarantee of our perseverance. Chapter 6, verse 7, Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit falling on us as the word is preached. That land, if it produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, that land receives a blessing from God. But, he says, if that land, having received the rain of the Holy Spirit, bears thorns and thistles, then it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Both, are, both kinds of land are receiving the Holy Spirit. So the question that remains is, is there a crop to follow? That's the source, then, of his warning. Take care that there be in none of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
That's the threat then to our endurance, an evil, unbelieving heart that if we're watchful might lead us to fall away. What's our responsibility then? Take a second look at our text in in Hebrews 3 verse 12. Take care, he says, lest there be in any of you such a heart. Instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So our responsibility then is found in those two words, take care and exhort one another. And notice who it is that we're supposed to be watching out for. He doesn't just say, take care that your heart might not be evil and unbelieving. But look again at our text. Take care, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. In any of you. It's the same thing in verse 13. Exhort one another as long as exhort one another every day as long as it is still called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's there's a mutual responsibility in in this text. Exhort one another, exhort each other, encourage each other so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You brother, you sister, bear a responsibility for your fellow brothers and sisters. We can't just look out for our own endurance and salvation. We're called also to look out for one another. We need one another. We need each other because on our own, we are far too easily deceived by ourselves. We make excuses for ourselves. We're blind to our own failures. We're blind to our own hypocrisies. But while it's easy for us to deceive ourselves, it's a lot harder to live in community with other Christians without them beginning to notice our failures and weaknesses. So we're called then to work together for our salvation. So then, exhort one another, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If we love our brothers and sisters, as we say we do, then we don't want this to happen to them. So let's talk to each other. Let's exhort one another. Let's encourage one another in our walk of faith. Well, think about what this means for us in this church also to exhort one another so that none of us may become hardened. It means looking across the aisle, remembering even those members that perhaps you don't know so well or you don't talk to so often. What can we do as a church community to watch out for one another? Exhortation and even more admonition, talking about someone else's sin, those are not easy things to do. And so it's easy for us to say, well, well, that person over there has, has other people that they can talk to, or she has a family that can talk to her about that, or the elders are talking to her about that. But then what a burden it is for that one family to have to take care of their straying brother or sister or child. Shouldn't they have our support? Shouldn't the whole congregation be standing behind them, exhorting, encouraging, and admonishing if necessary? Wouldn't we all want that same support if it was our family? 
So our prayers and our efforts must not be directed only to those nearest to us, but to all who, who, who we might have hope of persuading. We don't know what effect our friendship or our witness might have on someone else in the church. And just as, as your brothers and sisters in the church need you, so you also need them. The ancient Christian practice of confessing your sins to each other is not a Roman Catholic practice. It's true, we're not commanded to go to a priest behind a small window as the Roman Catholics do and confess our sins there. That would leave far too much in the hands of one single man. And what's more, that man doesn't know you as your brother or your sister or your wife might know you. Instead, we're called to confess our sins to one another so that we can be reproved if necessary, to be kept from falling away. Because what happens if, if we're not exhorting one another, if we're, allow, if we're not allowing ourselves to be exhorted by one another? Well, our text says it, we harden in the deceitfulness of sin. It starts with an unwillingness to acknowledge that something in our life is sinful or that our lives aren't as committed to Christ as they ought to be. And then when that unrepentance is not addressed, our hearts harden in sin. Our sin grows. The inconsistency between our profession and our way of life becomes more and more obvious to everybody else but ourselves. It doesn't always become obvious to us. We can remain as blind as ever to our own sins and our own hypocrisies and inconsistencies. Our hearts are very capable of deceiving us. The prophet Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So just because one of us thinks that he or she doesn't have a sin problem doesn't mean that there isn't a sin problem. It might just mean that that person is successfully duped by their own hardened heart. That's why we need each other. We need to be exhorting one another and encouraging one another and watching over one another's hearts and allowing ourselves to be exhorted and admonished by others. This is to make sure that we do indeed persevere. In a few minutes, another brother is going to take up his calling as elder in this church. And above everything else, his primary task is to keep watch over the flock. That's why the elders do their home visits every year. They're looking out for our salvation. They're doing what the author of the Hebrews encourages them and commands them to do. They're making sure that we endure. They're taking care lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart that might lead us to fall away from the living God. We all have this responsibility towards one another, but they bear an extra burden of that responsibility because they have to give an account before God. And so we too as a congregation must be open and honest with our elders. It's understandable that we're, we're tempted to, to hide our sins from the elders, to, to pass the test, so to speak, to hide the R-rated movies, to leave a clarion on, on the coffee table, that kind of thing. But the elders don't come to our house in order to fail us. 
They're coming to help us to persevere. We are the ones who benefit if they are able to see sins that we haven't been able to see for ourselves so that they can correct us and help us to persevere in the walk of faith. They're doing this work for our salvation. And so I would encourage you, leave your home more or less the way that it usually is. Even go so far as to pray that if there are sins that you aren't seeing in your own life, that they would have the eyes to see it so that they would be able to correct you. They're shepherds keeping a watch over the congregation to help us to persevere in the way of salvation. They are God's means of causing us to persevere. The point that that our text drives home then is that to be on our own, to live on the fringes of the church is dangerous. It's dangerous to live there. Our hearts are deceitful and on our own we're far more likely to harden in the deceitfulness of sin. We need one another to keep that from happening. Don't keep your brothers or sisters at arm's length, but allow them to come into your lives, and your elders receive them with thanksgiving into your homes. He are, they, they are the means that God gives to keep you strong in the faith. Well, before we close, notice also verse 14, his conclusion. He says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The author to the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, in fact, doesn't offer much detail concerning the goal to which we are striving. But scattered throughout this letter are these, these tiny little phrases that, if you unpack them, are full of meaning and encouragement. The expression that we have become partakers of Christ is a reference back to verse 1 of this chapter, where he says, you are partakers of a heavenly calling. And especially also then he says in verse 6, we are his house if we hold fast our confidence firm until the end. Well, I think the word house here means household. We are, we are Christ's family. That's often the case with the word house in the Greek. And the point is this, we who endure are counted as Christ's brothers and sisters, and so fellow sons and daughters to God. Not only is is the heavenly inheritance that we look forward to so much greater than the promised land was to the people of Israel, that land that was flowing with milk and honey, but our relationship to God is also that much more intimate. The people who were going into the, the, the land to inherit it, they were still separated from God by priests and by blood. But we are sons. The delight and the pleasure and the love that the Father has for His Son and has had since eternity, He also has for us who are counted together with His Son. And not only that, but we also inherit as brothers and sisters the saints who have gone before us, who have held on to the end through fires, through torture, through reproach including those 21 Coptic brothers who died on the beach in Libya. 
Those are the members of the eternal family that we are blessed to receive if we hold strong until the end. And that family then also includes one another, provided that we watch out for one another's salvation. We will inherit the heavenly kingdom, not as servants, but as sons. The saints before us have persevered. Let us also hold fast our confidence firm until the end and meet our brothers and sisters there and not grow weary in our walk of faith. Amen. Let's respond.